Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Professor Esch, Pablo Picasso was supposed to say that um, good artists copy, but great artists steal. And let me ask you the very same question I asked not a long time ago, but some European artists of worlds of ideas. How you became a liberal? I know if you remember, you asked me the very same question back in Vienna uh, a month or two ago. So how you became a liberal yourself? You know, this answer is possibly going to be very boring because people like great life stories about dramatic changes or dramatic revelations. But I was, I, no one is born a liberal, but I grew up in a liberal England and uh, I was from a relatively early age, a kind of liberal. When I became a conscious liberal, that I can tell you, which is sitting literally at the feet, on the floor, at the feet of Isaiah Berlin as an undergraduate here at Oxford in 1975. Hmm. And although he was one of the most famous intellectuals in the world at that time, he came to talk to a small undergraduate group at my undergraduate college, Exeter College, Oxford, and I was just inspired. And ever since I have said, Ich bin ein Berliner, meaning an Isaiah Berliner. <laughs> so you're Orwellian and Berliner. Uh, I think it's a good preparation. Absolutely. For... And, and let me just add that I've been a liberal ever since, uh, uh, changing in some of my opinions, but fundamentally all the way through. I wonder, is it uh, anything from the perspective that you, you said that you changed very little, but... I think it was John Maynard Keynes, another liberal, uh, who is considered a social democrat by, by many, but who said that when the facts change, I change my mind. And what do you do, sir? So did you change your mind about certain issues in this 50 years, almost adventure? Absolutely, without question. I, one would have to be extremely stupid if one didn't in 50 years. And uh, I, I like, like many, many people for whom the liberation of Central Europe and the transition to democracy in the 1990s, 80s and 90s was a great experience. I believed in a vision of globalization and I, I was never a neoliberal. I didn't believe free markets were the panacea for everything, but I believed that on the whole, um, the kind of capitalism we were getting in the 1990s and early 2000s was going to be helpful to democracy, helpful to human dignity, helpful to freedom. I have just finished writing a history of contemporary Europe, and part of that is about asking what went wrong, basically since 2008. And clearly, the malfunctioning of globalized, financialized capitalism is an important part of the answer. So that and by the way, it's both things, globalized and financialized, the two together. So that looking back, I think that possibly the greatest mistake liberals like me made was to hitch our passionate belief in human liberty, individual liberty, too closely to one particular model of capitalism. 
Mm, do you think it's fair actually to criticize liberals and liberalism for the excesses of the Wall Street, of the decisions that were made by certain politicians, also on the left? I wonder, because I, I totally agree that 2008 was a turning point, but liberals seems to be blamed, especially since then, for almost all the excesses of the um, of the Western politics and politicians. Do you, do you think it's, 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 it's fair and right critique, or do you think liberals should learn something from that, uh, or reject it? So, so, I don't think the guys driving into the city of London or Wall Street at four o'clock in the morning were liberals, let alone neoliberals. Uh, so to characterize this as a kind of ideological deformation, neoliberalism, is a mistake. It wasn't like communism, which really was built on a set of ideas and a set of texts which people actively studied. Communists read Lenin. Um, the brokers didn't read Friedman, most of them. Actually, someone like Vaslav Klaus was an exception. Um, nor do I think that... Uh, it was um, liberalism in the broadest sense as a political movement, although I think that particularly in post-communist Europe, the way in which liberalism, including Poland, the way in which liberalism was essentially reduced to the one dimension of economic liberalism, liberalism is three-dimensional or it's not liberal. If you don't have the political and social dimensions, it's not liberalism. So I think that was a big problem. Um, but fundamentally, I think the problem was what I just said, that liberals like me hitched our project, our emancipatory and actually egalitarian project, too closely to this model of capitalism. Post-1989, it seemed there was a moment where liberalism was really triumphant. And, and as, you, as you write in your Obrana Liberalismo Defense of Liberalism, published by Cultura Liberala, the, and you just said now that the turning point was 2008-2009 crisis. And I'm wondering, what do you think, I mean, with exception of hitching to, to uh, neoliberalism or these excesses of capitalism, what was the reason of this extreme crisis of confidence as well, of liberalism? I think in my you know, memory or when I read the post-war history of, of Europe, it seems like Liberalism is a very deep crisis. I don't know if it's the deepest crisis of the, in, in the history of liberalism. Perhaps not, because we had like interwar periods. But it seems a very deep crisis of, uh, of uh, liberalism, and it's unsure which way it wants to take. And perhaps superbia, the pride, maybe is you know, the cardinal sin. The thing is also, is it was the pride that, was, that doomed liberalism um, post-1989. Uh, so, so I think that and, and this is a key part of the argument of my book, hubris. Hubris is the word. It's not just the hubris of liberals, it's also the hubris of the United States, thinking that it was the hyperpower and could just march, march into Iraq and create a new democracy. Mm. It was the hubris of Cool Britannia. It was the hubris of the Eurozone. It was the hubris of Europe itself, believing that it was now a model for the world to emulate which is what people believe in. So there were multiple facets of the hubris, but certainly one of them was, uh, was liberal, hubris, uh, liberal hubris. And um, liberalism became much too closely associated, not just with that model of capitalism, but also with the establishment, the rich, the powerful. And that's always, uh, that's very bad for liberalism.
if it's simply the ideology of the rich and powerful. And I think that helps to explain the depth of the crisis that liberalism fell into after 2008. Um, there are, there's one other element to it, which is that liberalism has always been identified with reason, with education, with reason, with science, with progress. And so a lot of the initial reaction to populism was, who are these stupid, irrational people over there? And that's because, you know, Pascal, Blaise Pascal says somewhere, the heart has reasons, reason knows not of. <laughs> and we neglected the reasons of the heart. People who voted for the populists all over, US, Britain, France, Poland, you name it, had reasons of the heart. They felt neglected, they felt ignored, they felt condescended to by urban uh, 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 university-educated liberal elites, and they knew what they were saying in this protest. So I think all of that came together to this great moment of crisis and self-examination, but liberalism's great strength, the reason it's lasted so long, is its power of self-criticism. Mm. And this kind of frenzy of self-doubt and self-questioning and self-criticism in the end is going to turn out to be a strength. I remember that Leszek Kowalkowski wrote exactly these words about European civilization, that his biggest strength was the enabling the critic and taking advantage of this and transforming. So I think liberalism is, in this sense is extremely... Well, European. Um, the question is whether you think that liberalism can survive in the world when the universal claims are rejected very often, both from outside and the inside. Uh, so outside the non-Western countries, not just China, but you know, Africa, uh, South America, they don't want the lessons from, from Europe or, or, or US. We see this very much in direction to the, uh, to the war in Ukraine. And at the same time, you see a lot of people, especially from minorities, who feel that these universal claims of liberalism are to be rejected because there are some very particular um, experiences which cannot be translated into this universalist, uh, majorist um, uh, kind of discourses. So do you think that uh, liberalism can survive without being universal? It has to adapt and be more defensive, or it can still remain a universalist ideology? So... First of all, you're absolutely right that universalism, along with individualism, egalitarianism, and meliorism, i.e. the belief that things can be made better by human agency, is one of the core ingredients of any liberalism worthy of the name. So that's a good. However, the point about European universalism, it's never been universal enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we start, in the Enlightenment, by whom are these equal rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness enjoyed? Answer by white property-owning men. Um, uh, not by most of our own societies, let alone the rest of the world. And actually an Indian friend of mine, Rudranshu Mukherjee, wrote a fascinating little book about the crisis of liberalism, in which he said, you know, 
liberal empire like the British Raj in a way is extending the logic of liberalism in the sense that liberalism believes in enlightenment, in reason, in expertise. And here you had an enlightened, reasonable, expert elite telling a whole society how to improve itself. It's a really Mm -hmm. interesting challenge. Therefore, for much of the world, liberalism is mentally associated with unequal treatment and with colonialism. And this helps to explain why, when it comes to the Ukraine war, the rest of the world's democracies don't automatically line up with the West. India rather with Russia, Brazil, South Africa, if not siding with Russia, at least neutral. And so the fact that psychologically we're now in payback time for centuries of liberal imperialism is itself a big problem for liberalism. That's that's just a geopolitical fact. What do we do about it, to answer your question? We need a more complex universalism. We have to understand what are the elements on which there can be no compromise and what are the elements where there has to be compromise and indeed compromise for cultural difference is entirely reasonable. This is a challenge we face with the rest of the world, but also in our own societies. So the question about Muslims in Europe, what are the reasonable compromises to be made? Should we insist they take off the hijab or not, as in France? Or should that be a reasonable compromise, as in Britain, where passport officials mm-hmm. meet you at Heathrow with the hijab on and so on? So I think this question of, of working out what the complex universalism is for the 21st century is one of the great questions facing liberals. Also, the very question whether the liberal world order can survive without the, well, global uh, empire like Great Britain in the early 20th century and the US uh, supporting it. Is, is it really possible? So there's a great book um, uh, about the United States um, called Liberal Leviathan. Mm-hmm. And that captures it personally. And what, in fact, we've had, we've had 200 years of Western global ascendancy in which, uniquely in world history, the hegemonic baton was passed peacefully from one Anglo-Saxon democracy, or at least Anglo-Saxon liberal power, Britain, to another, the United States. So it's a unique stretch. of That is also coming to an end. So you have both the legacy of many centuries of European colonialism, payback for that, and the end of these 200 years of Western ascendancy and China as the emerging superpower. And the question, what international order, if any, emerges from that, is obviously an absolutely huge one. In the opening essay in the Umbrana Liberalismo, you, um, you're describing the alarm in which many of our compatriots find themselves because of the fast pace of the changes without going through, especially in terms of emancipations of minorities and, and, and immigration. Perhaps one of the reasons of Brexit was what many of my compatriots actually take advantage of, which was open borders post-2004, in which cases I can say that partially Poland was uh, you know, um, uh, one of the reasons of the Brexit. Uh, but mm, you advise moderation. And um, the, the thing is that the cost of emancipation of minorities is always a discomfort to majority. And also the economic growth is based on the influx of the new migrants from 
not just Europe, but about you know, Middle East and other countries. So do you think it is possible and fair to try to get the gin inside the bottle? Mm-hmm. Look, this is one of the most difficult questions facing us. We say it certainly didn't need to be the inhumane horrors that we saw on the Polish-Belarusian frontier. That's for sure. Inhumane. But if you go, as I did recently, to Ceuta, which is a Spanish enclave in mm. Morocco, you see a fence which is six meters high, a double fence. Um, and, you know, the price, the more we open frontiers inside Europe, the more impenetrable become the frontiers at the edge of Europe. So this is a huge moral and political dilemma for us. Where I think Donald Tusk, as president of the European Council, was absolutely right, was to say that what it cannot be is uncontrolled immigration. Mm. What really panicked people in Germany in 2015-2016 was a sense that it was out of control. It's no accident that the motto of Brexit was take back control. So we certainly have to manage immigration. There's no question about that. Um, but what, what the mistake we made was to let in too many people in an uncontrolled fashion and then not to let them integrate. Mm. So we need managed immigration, but then much better integration, as happens in Canada, by the way, the model. Canadian model. But that still leaves a question about what the hell we do for the other, whatever it is now, 7 billion plus people in the world who are outside and the migratory pressures um, that are going to come to us from sub-Saharan Africa and the wider Middle East are just going to be enormous. So so I think there are two different parts of it. I, I can see what the answer is domestically, which is managed immigration and much better integration. Much bigger challenge is what's our answer externally. Especially if you want to keep this universalism of liberalism that we are so proud of. Which leads me to the question of patriotism, because you write, you quote, uh, um, Pierre Hasner was yeah. the well great writer on, on, on liberal French, um, uh, uh, French liberal writer. And you write about this sense of community that we lost and we need. Uh, there is the quote that patriotism, I think it was Samuel Johnson, that patriotism is the last refuge of this crown law, which I think is very unfair in many ways. But of course, there are many crown laws who are trying to uh, hide behind the patriotic rhetorics. But liberals have a certain problem with waving a national flag. And I think it's not just in Poland or, or Great Britain. And I'm wondering because, well, you're a historian and... We re- you remember 1848, this kind of like European spring, when you had this national liberals all around Europe, young Italy, young Germany, well, young Poland. And is it possible, you think, to try to reunite, not necessarily come back to uh, nation states to be dominant, but the nations which are European in spirit, but li- like liberal domestically, European, European in the outwards politics, but nationalists which wouldn't be the like N-word. I think in many cases it is the N-word we, we don't want to use as liberals. So you think it's possible to combine those emotions? It, it's not only possible, it's essential. Mm. Charles de Gaulle said, 
patriotism is a love of your own country. Nationalism is a hatred of other peoples. And I think that's a really important distinction to keep in mind. Um, but we very much need, we liberals, need to rediscover and convey patriotism. So one of the mistakes we made in the post-1989 period was that we talked an awful lot about Europe, we talked an awful lot about the international community, we talked mm -hmm. about the other half of the world, all absolutely right, but we left the nation to the right. And that was a big mistake. And we have to rediscover a language of civic patriotism. Piłsudski, not Dubrovsky, mm. if you will. Is it possible? Totally possible. British patriotism is a civic patriotism because this is a nation made up of four nations. So it can't be an ethno-nationalism because there are Welsh and Scots and Irish <laughs> and English. Uh, French patriotism. I mean, you mentioned Piasna. Piasna is of Romanian Jewish origin, was, was of Romanian Jewish origin. But he became a great French intellectual because the French Republican tradition is of civic patriotism. And indeed, Macron is, for me, the politician with all his faults, who exemplifies how you can build a liberal patriotism into a wider Europeanism. So that's exactly what we have to mm. do. Certainly, there is not no lack of patriotism on the Ukrainian side now fighting the Russian invasion. And um, I think the words after the war, which would mean a lot of difference, would have a very different meaning to people in Russia, in Ukraine, well, in the whole region, basically, I think for the young people who are you know, well, born a couple of years ago. And you're going to speak at the Freedom Games um, about the EU after the war. And can you tell us what's already changed and what should change? Uh, for European Union because of this war at the, well, in Europe, this is the European war. One sentence, very glad you mentioned Zelensky in Ukraine. In a way, you're back to 1848, liberalism and nationalism going together. Yes. Um, I hope it remains an open civic nationalism in Ukraine. Mm. One would have to have a concern about attitudes to Russians in particular, understandably, but nonetheless. Um, a great deal has changed since the war. First of all, um, the illusions of what I call the post-war period, the period since the fall of the Berlin Wall, have either been buried or are being buried. Uh, the illusion that everything depends on the economy, the primacy of economic policy, the illusion that interdependence, energy from Russia necessarily strengthens peace, the illusion that you can marginalize military power, um, illusions, of course, about Putin and Russia itself. All of these, I think, um, have been buried or are being buried, and that's a very good thing. What should also happen is that we in Europe, we're speaking on the day the European political community is launched in Prague, which is, I was initially skeptical about it, it's actually a very good idea to have the whole of Europe in a conversation, including Britain, including Turkey, including Ukraine and the Western Balkans, that we get a geostrategic vision for our own future. 
which is not just about countering Russia and countering China, which is so much of and countering migration and countering climate change, all these negatives, but is again a vision of what a Europe whole and free would actually look like. And that would really take us into the new era because, you know, there were many bad things about post-1989, but the good thing was we had a vision of a Europe whole and free. It was about the enlargement of the West, uh, democracy, the EU, NATO, and up to a certain point, we did it. And in a way, we need that kind of grand vision again for 20, 30 years ahead. Well, you can't escape the ger new German question is the title of your essay. Um, and Germany always was in hundreds of years key to, to Europe. And you observed a paradox. It was almost 10, year ago, 10 years ago, I think it was 2013, that while German power has grown, it's a quote um, from you, its political class has shrunk. Mm. And is Germany big enough in terms of spirit and strategy? And where are the gangsters, the brands and the calls to respond to what you just described? It's a huge challenge because, and this is particularly important to say in the context of the current propaganda of peace in Poland, um, that this is an immensely civilized country and a model liberal democracy, um, uh, admirably in most ways in running its own affairs. But geostrategically, it has taken a kind of holiday from history. Uh, the current German ambassador to Warsaw, very fine foreign policy intellectual, Thomas Bagger, said that the end of history was an American idea, but a German reality. <laughs> and, you know, when I first got to know Germany in the 70s and 80s, you had people like Helmut Schmidt and many, many others, Helmut Kohl, who thought strategically because they had to, because they had a divided country and they had to try and unite their country. And there was a Cold War on and there was a vast military confrontation. And so at that time, there really was strategic thinking in Germany. And this has faded very much in the last 30 years. So that, uh, that there's, there is undoubtedly a, a challenge there. Now, there are people in Germany who are, who are already facing up to this challenge. I would mention, for example, Norbert Röttgen, the Christian mm. Democrat, former yes. head of the Foreign Affairs Committee. I would mention Robert Habeck and indeed Annalena Baerbock, the Greens altogether. So there, there is some, there is some mm. really intelligent strategic Absolutely. thinking there. But it's not sufficiently, it hasn't reached a critical mass um, in, in the German political class, I would mm. say. So there, there, there's, a, you know, there's, there's a lot of good thinking about in Berlin, but it has to come together. And above all, the way German democracy is structured since 1949, it has to come together in a strategy led from the Chancellery. Definitely no lack of strategy on the British side, which I think uh, Britain has done a marvelous job in Ukraine. I think a lot of Ukrainians really appreciating the training, the support uh, from Great Britain. Uh, I think one of the most traumatic things I read about uh, after just immediately after Brexit was your article in Guardian, when you wrote, "As an English European, this is the biggest defeat of my political life." The follow-up from the referendum vote will pit the two souls in my breast against each other. It evokes an awful sadness. And, and why I think in this most catastrophic scenarios didn't materialize, uh, I wanted to ask you, well, Britain seems to be in turmoil, internal turmoil since then. 
What do you take of what's your take on the post-Brexit Britain? How how do you feel? How do you see the future of your own country? The dilemma is still there because this pretty disastrous government that we have at the moment is in a way following through the logic of Brexit, mm. which is, as the phrase went, better off out. Uh, we're going to use this to do things differently. Now, the particular mm. way of doing things differently they've chosen has been done in an incredibly clumsy fashion. But, but nonetheless, that's the logic of Brexit. And as Emmanuel Macron immediately saw, that puts you in a competitive relationship with the EU. Mm. Um, Euroscepticism across the continent works by benchmarking. How would my country be out? Brexit Britain is the ultimate benchmark. Mm. So the dilemma is still there. I cannot want my own country to do badly. I'm a patriot. I want my own country to do well. Particularly England, by the way, because I'm thinking <laughs> an English patriot, but I want Britain to do well too. Um, and the Scots and the West. Um, but if it does too well relative to the EU, that will have a disintegrative impact on the EU. Mm. It's very interesting. The Eurobarometer poll asks a question regularly. Um, uh, uh, do you, words to the effect of Do you think your country would be better off outside mm. of the EU? Um, Just before Brexit, it was just over 30%. The last time the question was asked, it was still 28% hmm. in, in, in the current EU. So there are a lot of people, you know, Georgia Maloney's instincts, were they to stay <laughs> in the, you know, pieces instincts, is all about instincts to stay. And of course, pragmatically, they will. Um, so, 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 so that, I mean, that, that awkward competition is still there. The best formula I can come up with is that I want Britain to do really well and the EU to do even better. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, we don't want those two uh, clashing with each other. And well, Ukraine, war in Ukraine, this kind of challenge shows how Britain is needed in Europe, not just well, in EU, but uh, strategically, the EU cannot, uh, the Europe cannot exist without interference of Britain. And, and will be missed because. It's not just the external security, defense, foreign policy, intelligence, all that stuff where Britain is so strong. And, and make no mistake, we will coordinate. Mm. But coordinating from inside and outside the EU is complicated. There's a transaction cost, so it's a loss. Um, but also inside the EU. Um, you remember Princess Diana said famously there were three of us in our marriage, and it was a little crowded. <laughs> With France, Germany, and Britain, that ménage à trois, mm. it was the other way around. It helped to make the EU work well. True. Because if you didn't like a Franco-German initiative, and you were a medium-sized or small country, you could go with Britain. If you didn't like a British-German, you know, economically liberal initiative, you could go with France. And it, it remains to be seen how this is going to work with, so to speak, just France and Germany left in the driving seat. Especially that definitely the strategic vision of Britain is not really present and France might be the only country left. And to be honest, not all the countries in the EU are happy with what kind of French vision is exists for Europe. Um, well, even though Macron is, of course, a great European. But it's kind of like excluding, let's say, to well, some extent, Central well, East well, Europe. Indeed, which is why, number one, Central and East European voices have been so strong on Ukraine. Number two, they have become more powerful. 
Mm. It is. It would be impossible today for a Franco-German initiative on Ukraine, Minsk III, to go through against the resistance of the Central and East European member states. But that's that's a negative finding, right? But in itself, it's an element of disunity. Mm. This is why we come back to Germany, Europe's central power. What I saw for the first time in Olaf Scholz's Prague speech was a vision which, which embraced enlargement to Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, as well as the Western Balkans, which in, embraced the priorities of Central and East Europeans. And Germany as a central power is uniquely placed to do this, and therefore makes the bridge towards the French conceptions. But that's where we need to get to when there is one shared approach for the continent as a whole. Being Polish, I cannot not just ask you a question about about why do you think the country was always so proud of its democratic, um, well, maybe not history, but its democratic struggle with communism and and before national struggle, um, so quickly abandoned the values for which it well seemed to find and 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 stick. It's like a couple of years, and Poland is considered like not full democracy, but some, it's, we're not maybe in such a state as Hungary. Uh, we can still do better. We can still win elections. For, I mean, opposition can win elections. There might be fair elections. You you know Poland better than perhaps anyone else outside Poland. And I'm wondering, how was it something you could perhaps foresee? Did you see the forces in play which resulted in this kind of nationalistic course, very reductionist, very anti-European, even as by the government, at the same time having so pro-European population. It is something Poles themselves can understand. What do you make of it? Well, first of all, I find it very painful to see what's happened. Secondly, I don't think Poland as a country, the Poles as a people, have abandoned these values. Because as you say, if you look at the opinion polls, it's massively pro-European mm. still. And there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets standing up for independent courts and the constitution and so on. So the question is really, why has the politics gone that way? Um, because Jarosław Kaczynski has been an incredibly successful political entrepreneur. Hmm. Whatever we can discuss, what his personal convictions are, but as a political entrepreneur, he's been brilliant at gathering together different parts of Polish society, different ideological tendencies even, into this um, large tent of peace which has gone on winning elections and scoring with this strange combination of right-wing cultural policy and foreign policy and to some extent social policy and left-wing economic policy and mm. welfare policy, which is a very successful combination. So I think the answer has to be, has to be granular in the actual the politics of this story. And what I see, cut a very complicated story, very short, Number one, you have all the general factors that gave us nationalist Eurosceptic populism all over the continent. In particular, the impact of the globalized, financialized capitalism, uh, which we talked about, which Poland got in the raw without many of the checks and balances you have in a society like Britain or Germany. So, so, so you have that. And then you have the particular complexes of a post-communist society, for example, the politics of history. The, I think, really fateful mistake of my, some of my closest friends in the Polish democratic opposition, liberal opposition, 
of not having a major symbolic reckoning with the communist past, which enabled peace to build this broad coalition about a sense of historical injustice and actually to link the sense of economic injustice to the sense of historical injustice. It's not just that those people up there in Warsaw are getting rich while I'm still in a crappy little two-bedroom apartment or one-bedroom apartment mm. in Gdańsk and unemployed. It's the guys who are getting rich in Warsaw are the former Ubetsi or communist or Jerzy Orban. And it's that particular combination of the generic features of populism and the specific features of post-communist populism which, in my view, explains the success so far, I stress so far, of this uh, uh, option. Last word, it's nothing like as far gone as in Hungary. Hungary is no longer a democracy. A liberal democracy in principle is a contradiction in terms. A democracy is liberal or it isn't democracy, but it's quite a useful term for describing a democracy, a liberal democracy in a state of decay. And that's what we have in Poland. But at Poland, it's still entirely recoverable. The key thing you have to do is just win the next election. <laughs> that's quite a forceful message. Uh, we're running um, to, the, to the end of, of, of our conversation, but I wanted to ask you at least one more question, because I found an extremely interesting essay from 1998 in the New York Review of Books, Orwell in 1998, mm -hmm. uh, that you wrote about. And you wrote, the, and I quote, Although today's technology of secret electronic surveillance make the photo police telescreen look primitive, the threat of that kind of centralized party-state totalitarianism has, unless I'm horribly mistaken, received. And I'm wondering, since then, so many things changed, and I'm thinking of China Great Firewall and more subtle ways in which our democracies are manipulated by the, through the social media. And I'm wondering, do you think that perhaps the dystopias of Brave New Worlds and 1984 could become some version of reality? Is social media even compatible with democracy? Thank you for reminding me of that quote. I was horribly mistaken. <laughs> uh, because the one thing none of us imagined, you remember very well the 4th of June 1989, mm. the elections in Poland, I have the poster just outside with Gary Cooper, but the Tiananmen Square massacre in China. And at that point, none of us imagined that China could come up with this unique, unprecedented combination, a Leninist capitalist state, and now an increasingly neo-totalitarian regime in which in Xinjiang, with surveillance way beyond Orwell's telescreen, um, that aspect of the Orwellian nightmare is becoming a reality. So we simply have to acknowledge that. So I think that is absolutely true. What I don't think is that the internet is incompatible with democracy, or social media are incompatible with democracy. So there's a lot of superficial talk about this. It's a technology. All technologies are double-edged. A knife is a technology. I can use a knife to cut my sandwich, or I can use a knife to murder you. All the, and, and the internet and social media are also double-edged, because they also have enormous liberating potential. Look at how the opposition organized in Belarus, for example. Mm. So I don't think there's anything inevitable about the destruction of democracy, the nature of the internet or social media. Uh, you are, I think, like, a little bit like Orwell, like standing for the God of things as they are, <laughs> at the same time as spectacle, spectator, engager. Yeah. And I wanted you to give a, well, message to liberals across Europe. What 
should we do now? Learn from our mistakes, fight the good fight, believe that we can win again, which we can, and if you have a dark night of the soul, look to somewhere like Belarus, look to Ukraine. In countries which have faced unfreedom, the flame of liberty is shining very brightly, and so it will be again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great pleasure. Thank you. This is all for today. Um, a little bit earlier than usually. Please tune in also for Freedom Games, which are happening just this week on weekends. Uh, a lot of things happening online. You can find the link uh, in the description of the podcast. And we'll come back with more interesting guests uh, in a two weeks' time. Thank you so much. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing, and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.